Hello, this is Ian Harper welcoming you to Business of Weather podcast, produced in association with Intermet Digital, the online portal dedicated to extreme weather and climate change, flooding and poor air quality. In each episode, we'll investigate the increasing impact of extreme weather and climate change on business and society, and how weather technology and information services can address the growing challenges. The aim is to spotlight the opportunities for entrepreneurs, startups and investors to develop the business potential of assisting weather-affected enterprises. As climate change accelerates, the need to replace fossil fuel-based energy generation, transportation and other sources of carbon emissions is becoming increasingly urgent. While the growing efficiency and quantity of solar and wind-generated electricity can go a long way towards achieving this, there are many instances where grid-supplied power is unsuitable, inadequate or non-existent. What's more, the growth in use of electric cars while hugely welcome, is likely to push the existing means of generating and distributing electricity to the limit, and probably beyond it. In this episode of Business of Weather, we look at a revolutionary clean technology which uses semiconductor material to convert the rays emitted by radioisotopes, such as cobalt-60, into electricity in a way analogous to conventional solar cells. Known as the infinite power cell, The technology is claimed to be 600% more effective than a solar cell and the cheapest source of electricity on the planet with an estimated cost as low as 2 cents per kilowatt hour. Too good to be true? We spoke to Rob McLeod, the CEO of Infinite Energy, the business set up to develop and commercialise this potentially game-changing device. Rob McLeod. Welcome to Business of Weather. Thanks very much. Thanks thanks for the invitation. Pleasure to be here. Now, Rob, can you please tell me a little bit about yourself, how you came to be involved with Infinite Power and took on the role of CEO? Well, a, a few years ago, um, I was looking at uh, different investment opportunities in, in the area of clean energy, climate change, uh, animal welfare, uh, food security. And I was approached by the people, the inventor, and the financier of uh, Infinite Power. Uh, and they asked, they showed me their project and asked if I would like to get involved. Uh, it was an early stage. Um, I, I liked the look of it, I liked what it achieved. I realized there was a lot of work to do. Um, but I put some money in and, and started uh, yeah, supporting the business. Um, and then towards summer of last year, we had a particular breakthrough. Um, in regard to some work we're doing at the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom. And it was decided then we could move on to commercialization. And and that's when they asked me to join them as uh, CEO. Right. Now, a key aim of Business of Weather is to highlight the business opportunities arising from the challenges of extreme weather and climate change. And on the face of it, your business provides an excellent example of an innovation which can reduce reliance on fossil fuels in areas where there are currently few, if any, alternatives. For example, the need to rely on diesel generators for emergency power backup in hospitals or other critical areas. So, let me ask you, the infinite power cell proof of concept dates back nine years to 2012, I believe. 
So can you briefly summarise the key milestones achieved since then and where the project is right now in terms of its overall objectives? Yes, certainly. You have to look at this from uh, a typical solar cell, where a solar cell converts energy from the sun uh, into electricity. Now, what um, my colleagues uh, were looking at, particularly Steve Whitehead was looking at, was how can we convert rays from other sources of energy other than the sun? There's an advantage in that. One, they emit energy 24 hours a day. They don't, they're not dependent on uh, the sun shining, and of course, they're not dependent on latitude, which is very important for solar, solar power. That was the first realization. So the first step was to develop a cell that could convert uh, these energies into, from these radioisotopes into electricity. And that happened at the University of New South Wales, as you write, some eight or nine years ago. We then went to the Pacific Northwest Nuclear Laboratory in Washington State, in the United States, and worked with them using higher powered sources, uh, getting more energy into the cells and, and converting that to electricity. And we were converting beta waves and X-rays into electricity. And this is yeah, quite important, hadn't been done before with the X-rays. Uh, the next step was we opened a, we decided to open a laboratory in Cumbria in uh, the United Kingdom uh, because of the yeah, the deep levels of knowledge about uh, the industry in that part of the United Kingdom. Uh, lots of engineers, lots of people who, who know what they're doing. Um, and so we opened the laboratory and we continued our work developing cells using ever more powerful radioisotopes such as strontium and cesium. Then the big breakthrough, as I said, came last, uh, uh, last summer when we used cobalt-60. Uh, cobalt-60 is a very powerful gamma source and the gamma waves have a lot of energy. And we were able to put ourselves in front of that gamma source. We ran that for 36 hours, having it producing electricity. Now, if you were to put a typical solar cell in front of a gamma source, it would burn out within seconds. So this meant that the cells were what we call hard, radiation hard. It means that they can withstand the energy of the gamma rays and can safely convert that into electricity. So that was the big breakthrough. And what we've been doing now is setting out our steps for commercialization. All right, let's uh, pick up on that and look ahead for a minute. Can you tell me about the work that lies ahead to reach commercial viability as a business? Well, it's pretty straightforward. In fact, the, um, the technology we use to build the cells is the same technology you build, use to build solar cells. We can buy that equipment basically off the production line. Uh, that's not going to be an issue. Where we've got our, 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 our knowledge, our special sources, is what we, how we build those cells. So we can start building those cells quite quickly. Uh, we then need to source isotope and we need to find customers, which is what we're doing at the moment. Now, the very next step, our first step, is to build a 10 kilowatt uh, demonstration project, uh, which we're currently uh, sourcing the, the kit for and sourcing the isotope for, and we're also currently raising the capital for. Uh, once we have that 10 kilowatt unit built and we're demonstrating the power capacity of the 10 kilowatt unit, we already have a number of customers ready to take bigger units ranging from 150 kilowatts up onto 30 megawatts. Uh, just to follow up on that, how big is a 10 kilowatt unit? Well, the 10 kilowatt units uh, we're planning at the moment would be about one meter cubed. And that's what we call an unshielded unit. That's one that we would put inside factory or put inside a production plant. We could also build a shielded unit, which is slightly bigger, 
and you can these could be standalone units. Uh, and the good thing about these units is they can sit there and they'll keep producing electricity. There are no moving parts inside the unit. It just keeps producing electricity so long as the isotopes uh, giving off uh, gamma rays. But the cell itself is about one one uh, cubic meter. And as I say, they can be added in a modular fashion, set up in a modular way up to, well, we've got, as I say, we've got plans to build a 30 megawatt unit, but this can could be scaled you know, larger and larger. There's no reason to stop scaling. Don't you have to turn these off if you're not using the power from them? No, not at all. No, the, there's two things here. First of all, there are three things you can do with excess power. You can put the power into the grid, uh, sell it into the grid. You can use it, you can put it into a hydrogen converter, so to, in, into an electrolyzer to produce hydrogen, uh, or you can simply put it to ground. Uh, this is what uh, this is what one would normally do with uh, with power it can be put straight into ground. So what we want to do there, we want to maximise the use. And so some of the projects we're looking at are indeed uh, looking at being associated with hydrogen production as well. So for transport projects, producing electric vehicle electricity vehicles, electric cars, but then also producing hydrogen from the same facility for buses and trucks. What about the people who work for the company? How many people do you currently employ? How are they split between sales and marketing, R&D, et cetera? And what are their main skill sets? We have around uh, about a dozen people working for us at the moment. Um, and uh, beside myself, a chief financial officer and a, a chief legal officer, uh, the rest really is on science and engineering. Uh, we have Steve Whitehead, the inventor, and our chief scientific officer. Uh, he leads his team of um, uh, of scientists and engineers, there are people there with skills in uh, in building cells, in uh, ionizing radiation, uh, all sorts of engineering skills. Uh, but it's a very small team at the moment. We don't need a big team at the moment. We're looking at funding to expand that team into a production team, which of course is going to be a much a much bigger team. So yeah, we've lined up yeah, project managers, production engineers. Uh, isotope um, buyers, all these people lined up to when we complete our funding, we'll be able to bring them in to expand the, expand the company quite quickly. Right. Okay. Now, the company is spread across a number of locations. Uh, why is this? And are there any pros and cons to this style of work? It just happens that we all are spread of different locations. I'm based in Brussels. Our laboratory is in Cumbria. Um, our chief legal officer, chief financial officer are both in New York. Our main investor is in, um, is in Sydney. Uh, that's just the way it, that's just the way it happens. And I don't think it's a, an encumbrance, uh, particularly because we're all working from home for the last 15 months anyway. So it hasn't really made much difference. Uh, I think there are advantages because we do see, uh, global opportunities for the business. Uh, and it's important to have a global outlook. So we understand the challenges and the opportunities that exist at a global level. Uh, climate change is a global problem. The, the requirement for electricity is a global problem, a global opportunity. Uh, so I think it's good to be a global company. Um, once the uh, the COVID uh, crisis is over and behind us, we all travel again. It'll also be good to get all the team together in one place. Business of weather, spotlighting the business opportunities of extreme weather and climate change. Right now, while business of weather is more concerned with getting an accurate overview rather than the intricate details of the technologies involved in an innovation. You've got some pretty novel things going on here. 
So I'd like to get a handle on how a startup business such as Infinite Power has gone about getting to grips with what must be some pretty considerable challenges. Now, your innovation involves using high-energy electromagnetic radiation, beta particles, gamma rays, X-rays, rather than visible light to generate electricity in conjunction with semiconductor panels. To do this requires the use of a radioactive source and the semiconductor material tough enough to withstand such radiation. So first of all, what can you tell me about the semiconductor material you use to generate electricity from high-energy radiation, and also, where do you get it made? Right, well, the, we make them at present in our own laboratory, uh, and we can't tell you too much about it because that is uh, our protected intellectual property. Uh, of what goes into making it. This was the real breakthrough that we've had. Uh, in fact, the patents we hold uh, explain what we do and how we do it, but they don't include, if you like, that secret source of how we make the uh, isotopes, what, how we build the, the PN junction. That would be giving away too much information. Uh, and that means that we protect ourselves from someone just coming along, taking the patent and copying it. It's, a, it's quite a precise process It's taken us nine years to get to where we are. Um, but the cells themselves are, are quite easy to produce. Uh, we're using a, uh, a standard magnetron uh, in our laboratory in Cumbria to produce the small scale cells. Uh, we've, we've lined up the acquisition of uh, larger equipment and contract manufacturers for the larger cells. Uh, it's a pretty straightforward process if you know what the secret source is. And of course, that's, that's what we're protecting. Okay, now let's take a look at the source of the uh, the high energy radiation itself, the radioisotope that you use. I've seen mention of cesium. Uh, you also mentioned strontium and uh, cobalt. Where do you get this stuff from, and uh, just how expensive is it to buy this sort of material? Uh, the material itself comes from uh, well, it comes from a number of sources. There are a number of suppliers of uh, radioisotopes. Radioisotopes are used in everything from medicine to uh, you know, smoke detectors, food irradiation equipment, measuring equipment, uh, pipeline you know, structural testing, uh, non-destructive testing equipment. Isotopes are used all around us. They're used in everyday uh, applications. Uh, so buying them is, uh, is a, a well-understood, well-practiced process as is handling and control of them. Um, the isotopes we're using, we plan to use, um, uh, are cobalt uh, and europium, in fact, are the two ones that we, will be most suited for what we want. Uh, we can use cesium, but cesium is harder to handle and is not very, not very, not much, there's not much of it commercially available. It's a byproduct of uh, the nuclear power industry, uh, so it tends to be stored. Now, we have got projects looking at going in centres placing ourselves in it and producing power on site. We are looking at projects and doing that uh, at the moment in, in several places around the world. And that could be a valuable way of using this material that otherwise just sits there, giving off, um, uh, giving off those uh, radio waves. So, uh, but for commercial acquisition, we'll be looking at cobalt and europium. Now these are produced in industrial reactors. An industrial reactor is not like a power reactor. They're very safe and they're very standard because they're not trying to achieve high temperatures to boil water, to produce steam, to drive turbines. They are, they're found, you find industrial reactors 
in universities. And we've identified some 85 suitable reactors uh, in Europe alone, where we could be sourcing material from that are currently utilized at a rate of around 20%. So the, the, the reactors are currently underutilized. So that's where we intend to get the first waves of our uh, product from. Uh, is it expensive? Well, we can produce power even with the expense of the isotope, and that is our biggest expense. We can still produce power that's as cheap as uh, anything that's going to be on the market. I think the, the next cheapest power is large-scale solar power, uh, but we can be as cheap as that. Right, okay. Now let's look at the finished product, the infinite power cell itself, which I understand can be grouped together to form modules. Tell me, what's the power output of a single infinite power cell? What does it cost to produce and what's its life expectancy? Well, the, the power cell itself, each power cell will produce around 10 kilowatts. It really depends on how much source we put in there, what isotope we put in there. Do we plan to build them at a, one ten, at a 10 kilowatt uh, rating, and we could do, we could adjust it upwards and downwards as much as we like, but we, that's what our plan is. That, as I said, will depend on the half life of the, how long it lasts. Depends on the half life of the isotope. Now, theoretically, it could last for years, but the amount of usable power out of it you get out of it will fall as the half lives cycle through. And uh, just to be clear, what I mean uh, by that, uh, one kilogram of cobalt sixty will produce ten kilowatts of power. Its half life is around five and a half years. So after five and a half years, you only you don't have one kilogram anymore. You have half a kilogram of cobalt 60 and half a kilogram of nickel, pure nickel. So that cobalt 60 then gives off five kilowatts. And again, this halves again. So our plan is to uh, recycle or re-energize the units after every 11 years. So to refill them or to recycle them. Uh, and that, that's a very straightforward uh, process. Uh, as to how much we cost, well, we can't, we're not going to uh, go into what our costs are here, other than the fact that we can still produce these at competitive uh, and charge competitive uh, power rates for producing uh, you know, safe, clean, carbon-free baseload power. Right, thank you for that. Now, this is a pretty novel innovation, and one which I'm sure is guarded by a range of patents. But no innovation is completely immune from competition. So, if this device proves to be a success, what advantages do you have over potential competitors? Is it down to first mover advantage and cost of entry? There is first mover advantage, of course, uh, and I think that is substantial. Um, it would be it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to reverse engineer the PN junctions. Uh, we're talking of work that's being done at micron level. Any attempt to re-engineer would likely to destruct the, or destroy the uh, PN junction. So we think uh, we're on a a pretty good uh, path there. But I think we could look at it a different way. The there is going to be so much requirement for power. That there are so many innovations coming uh, that I think that's really what's uh, there's going to be competition from all sorts of different powers, all sorts of different power sources. Uh, and I think yeah, it's about providing uh, safe and clean and emissions free power is really uh, what everyone's going to be aiming for. Now, before I move on, I'd just like to ask a couple of health and safety type questions. So, Anything involving the use of radiation is a potential health hazard. So how does this impact the potential applications of your innovation? 
I mentioned before that isotopes are used in everyday environments, and they really are. They're, they're, they're people associate um, uh, isotopes with something that's uh, from a nuclear power station or that's dangerous, but isotopes uh, are used in everyday life, uh, in x-ray machines, in scanning machines, in wherever you, uh, you know, travel to an airport. Uh, and these are covered in a protective casing. And the rules and the practices for handling isotopes are extremely well known and extremely well practiced. And it's something that people understand very well. So there is no danger of uh, people getting into these cells or being able to take the isotopes away or the isotope escaping. And remember, these isotopes are giving off, are giving off gamma rays. They're not giving off neutrons. And that's important because it means is when you take the isotope away from the cell itself and you store that, you can wipe the cell out with a damp cloth. There is no remaining radiation there. There's no remaining contamination in the cell. There are no neutrons being given off. Nothing has been activated in that cell. It really is a matter of wiping it off with a cloth. So it's a very uh, safe form of uh, power generation. As I said, without, there are no neutrons being given off, so there's no contamination. Nothing else is being made active in this process. It's simply the natural decay of the isotopes which we're harnessing. What actually happens to the infinite power cells when they no longer work or reach the end of their life? Well, that's what our, our plan is to, uh, after 11 years or thereabouts, we will take the cell out, remove the uh, remaining uh, isotope, send that back to the suppliers for recycling and reuse, then bring, uh, and then we can either then reuse the cell or recycle the cell. The cell is ostensibly uh, steel and glass. Uh, and so we'll be able to uh, recycle the vast majority of the cell um, and, and reuse, in fact, the cell. So there's, there'll be, we, we see very limited waste. As I said, there's nothing contaminated left behind. Business of Weather, spotlighting the business opportunities of extreme weather and climate change. Okay, thanks. Now, let's. Uh, I'd like to move on now to the uh, the target market for your innovation. Now, the importance of marketing and understanding your target customer base is critical for any business. So, can you just give me an idea of how you see the potential customer base for your innovation, and how you envisage this might evolve over time? Well, we're looking at customers now. Uh, talking to customers now who have a requirement for a clean baseload power uninterruptible power, uh, power that is secure from you know, attacks on the grid or failures on the grid. We've seen that in, in, uh, in the US recently. Uh, you know, uh, you know, people like, who are operating things like hospitals and nursing homes and critical facilities require uh, a lot of this uh, on-grid, off-grid uh, power. Uh, there's also uh, areas, remote areas, where uh, you know, power is not easily available. We're talking to couplements where they have no natural uh, power sources, resources, uh, and they don't have uh, either the, the space or the inclination to you know, fill their islands full of uh, solar panels and wind farms. Uh, so we're talking to them about what we can do uh, to provide baseload power for them as well. So we see that is the first, uh, first step. Also replacing expensive diesel generated, expensive and dirty diesel generation power. You know, there are there are plenty of places around Europe where in remote communities where the power is still, energy is still helicoptered in, in, in propane tanks. 
to, to run um, generators. That's an incredibly expensive and wasteful uh, and polluting form of energy. So we can see that as the first round where we can start uh, building our, our stations. There's also new housing developments. We're talking to the developer of some new housing developments about building a power station alongside with their development to provide you know, the power for the development itself. Uh, and so for new towns, the, uh, and then further out, I think there will be, once the technology becomes, people get used to the technology, uh, there will be requirements, I think, for new power stations uh, of a larger scale. And this is, I think, the, the key thing. Uh, there's going to be a lot more requirement for power. If you think about uh, just switching uh, electric vehicles to electric vehicles in the UK, yeah, the government's own uh, assessment is that will require them to triple the amount of electricity that's produced in the UK, triple from what's produced now. We already import about 20% of our power. Now, in order to do that, we're going to have to generate a lot more electricity. There's simply not enough wind or solar or space for solar farms. We're already coming up against a, a block on, the, on using farming land for new solar farms. So there's going to be a requirement for a lot more different power, a lot more different uh, power solutions. Uh, so we're seeing that is there is so much more opportunity around the world for power. Uh, it's a matter of if we already have you know, basically a, a backlog of three years of production ready to go from different orders of people we were currently working with. Right. Uh, now you've referenced three customers, I believe, in the uh, the marketing information I've seen. Uh, the UK NHS, a Danish residential community and something called Project Violet. Could you tell me about your existing customers, especially Project Violet, and say whether they correspond to your customer profile, or have there been any surprises out there? Well, the the three projects, yes, they are um, they do correspond. We're working with a hospital in the UK, NHS hospital in the UK, uh, about building a, uh, a a facility there, which will initially provide all their overnight power requirements. Uh, and then also supply their backup power as well, eventually supply their backup power as well, um, where uh, the uh, new, de new development, of course, in, uh, in Denmark is, a, is an interesting one for us. Uh, Project Violet, we can't say too much about it yet, um, but it is basically uh, three 10 megawatt units. This is the 30 megawatt plant, but three separate 10 megawatt units, which are going in to supply industrial customers who are looking to uh, protect their supply of power over the longer term. One of the great fears of many industrial companies, particularly in the UK, is that there's going to be a shortage of power as you move to electric vehicles uh, and um, and shut down old nuclear power stations and, and uh, other power stations. There's going to be a big shortage of, of power. So it's about uh, yeah, how can they secure their power supplies at a price that they can predict. Uh, in terms of other customers, we have um, had a lot of good discussions with the uh, UK government on the possibility of uh, remote electric vehicle charging stations. So you imagine uh, electric vehicle charging, you have an electric vehicle charging, you're up in, in northern Scotland or in the mountains of Wales or somewhere remote uh, where you need to charge your vehicle. If we're going to move to electric vehicles, you can't tell people that well, you can drive anywhere except you can't go to north of Scotland. Uh, because it's too remote and there's no electric vehicle charging stations there and there's no grid there and or the grid isn't sufficient enough to uh, 
handle uh, fast charging uh, motor vehicles. So we're looking at building remote electric vehicle charging stations as well. It's another uh, real possibility for us. Um, yeah, so there's a, that, that, that's probably been one of the big surprise ones, if you like, of potential there. But, you know, we think there's probably, you know, 500 potential sites for remote vehicle charging in, in the UK. Uh, in the US, we estimate there's closer to five or 6,000 potential sites for remote vehicle charging. And then we get to places like Canada, Australia. Yeah, these are places where, in many places, there is no grid. Indeed. Now, I imagine the military must be very interested in such an innovation as yours, and they could represent a considerable market, I would have thought. Has there been any military interest at all? We are talking with um, uh, a couple of governments about how we can support you know, what they do, uh, particularly with remote installations, uh, places where you know, they, they don't want to, where, where there is no power. And currently they may use a long-term uh, diesel storage and replenishment uh, in remote locations. Uh, so yes, we are talking about that. We can't say too much about that as you'd imagine, but we are talking to a couple of governments about precisely that. Now, bit of a crazy question perhaps, but could this type of technology potentially replace the need for small nuclear reactors? For example, in a, in a nuclear submarine? Uh, look, I, it's potentially yes, indeed. Um, I think there, but what I think at the moment is what we have to focus on is the increased demand for electricity that's, going, that's coming up for us now. If people underestimate the impact of moving to electric vehicles. You know, the, you know you, it's the first law of thermodynamics. You can't create energy out of nothing. Electricity is not an energy source. It's a delivery of energy. It's a vector to deliver the energy. To use like hydrogen, um, so we've got to find a way to generate electricity, uh, and that's going to increase remarkably around the world as we move to electric vehicles and as we take away gas heating of buildings, or as the climate changes, we're going to find you know, many countries in the world building pumping stations to keep cities dry, uh, building um, desalinization plants to provide drinking water. These are the challenges we face as a society. Uh, demand for electricity is going to soar, so I don't see us replacing uh, any clean source of power like a small uh, small modular reactors or wind or solar we're all going to be there's going to be no single solution it's going to be a number of solutions working together uh, that's going to provide us the massive amounts of power we're going to need without using fossil fuels business of weather spotlighting the business opportunities of extreme weather and climate change Okay, thank you. Now, I'd like to move on to the uh, the really important area uh, when it comes to business of weather, and that's the, the one of raising funds. One thing we try to do is help would-be entrepreneurs understand the process of raising money for the business by learning from the experience of others. So I'd like to move on to the key issue of money and how you funded progress to date. Now, given the degree, the degree of innovation and the associated commercial risks involved with projects such as yours and the R&D, skilled people and other key ingredients required, I'd assume it's been a relatively costly and arduous process getting the company to where it is now. So, where do you stand in terms of investment or borrowing to date? Can you give me an overview of how you've gone about raising funds and who your current investors are? Well, our current investors are all individuals, um, high net worth individuals. 
uh, and uh, we've invested uh, around eight million pounds to date. Uh, now we are looking to raise more uh, money. We're in the process of raising uh, more money. We have a um, we're talking to a number of investors about a convertible loan, uh, which is a, is a quite a neat way uh, to raise money from some investors. Uh, we are uh, not looking to issue shares at the moment uh, because, well, we we've got to look at the. Our business is going to require, it requires now a small amount of capital, around five or six million pounds to build our demonstrated unit. We'll then require maybe another 25, 30 million pounds to build our first production line. After that, as we scale, uh, our funding requirements become more complex, but we'll be able to use you know, power funding against power purchase agreements, uh, those sorts of things to raise new capital. So what we have is, uh, yeah, what I mentioned we have uh, 13, yeah, around a dozen people on staff. One of those is our CFO, who is an expert in raising capital. That's, yeah, we are looking at innovative ways of raising capital in the future, uh, as well as raising capital now. Uh, and, and one, you know, uh, yeah, one advice I would give to investors to, uh, is to really sort of think a little bit outside the box. About how you're going to raise how you're going to raise money, and and, and use the experience of uh, someone who has done it before to help you raise money. Um, you know the one thing in my experience, with not just the infinite power, of course, but with many companies I've been involved in and invested in, is yeah, quite often the people who are, have invented the business or invented the product or are building the product aren't necessarily the best people to be raising the money for the product. Raising capital is a at this stage of a business is an all-consuming project. You're always raising capital. Small businesses can never have too much money in them. Okay, thanks. Now, I was going to ask you uh, to tell me a little bit about what lies ahead in the fundraising process, but I think you've answered most of that. But just a couple of points. Um, do you see the, a potential here for uh, public involvement in the investment process, uh, some sort of kind of crowdfunding exercise? Or do you see there's a, an opportunity for um, a trade investor to come along, an existing utility perhaps? Yeah, at this point in time, you wouldn't rule out anything. Uh, there are lots of different uh, potential options. Uh, at the moment, we're focused on getting the next round finished. Uh, in fact, in fact, we're focused on the next two rounds, thinking one round ahead. Um, then after that, we will, yeah, when we finish this round, we'll work on the next round and the one after that. Uh, I think that, yeah, there's going to be a lot of interest in these sorts of uh, uh, technologies, these sorts of industries. And when we're up and running and producing power and, and bringing in revenue, I'm sure we'll track we'll track a lot of interesting partners. Um, I think we can assess that uh, when it comes. As to the best way forward, well, you know, we're at the moment we're concentrating on you know, getting the business to where it needs to be to ensure we can take that next move uh, later on. Okay, just to clarify, the next two rounds are first of all the five to six million pound fundraising to build the demonstrator, and I think you said twenty-five to thirty million pounds to build a production line. Would that be right for the next two rounds? That's right. Now, the management team, do they currently retain overall control of the company and do you see this changing in the future? Well, there's a very small group of investors and, and managers, so it's um you know, there's a, it's not really about having to have overall control. Um, it's about that it's a team working together 
uh, with a very limited number of shareholders. Uh, there are two larger shareholders and a number of smaller ones. So the direction of the company is pretty clear. I don't see that changing anytime soon. Uh, but when we're a small company, we're really focused. We're all focused in the same direction. So I don't see that as a as an issue for us just yet. Okay. Now, how would you describe your experience of fundraising to date? Have your ideas fallen on fertile ground with investors? Would you say? Yeah, I think the the tricky thing is bringing new new technology to market. Radically new technology to market is uh, is always a challenge. You know, for you know, many years, for the last 30 years, the uh, IEA countries, International Energy Agency countries, uh, have invested some $600 billion in uh, energy uh, research and R&D. Of that, half has gone into oil and gas, and almost all the rest has gone into wind and solar. Uh, there is some a little bit going into fusion, a little bit going into batteries, little bit into hydrogen, but it's very, very small. Uh, and the fact is that when you go and talk to people, they've already made such big investments into wind and solar, it's hard to get attention to investing in something else or they're much uh, that particular technology. And when the money backs that technology, that's where the R&D goes. That's where the universities look for funding because that's where the money is. And that's understandable. So what we've had to do is to go to people, we are a new technology. We are something that's different. We are something that is that will support other uh, clean power technologies. It takes it take, does take longer than to raise capital. You've seen uh, electric vehicle charging stations. Uh, they're yeah, raising money all the time on on SPACs and on crowdfunding and everywhere. Everyone's throwing money into them uh, because they see that as the next big thing. Yet I'm challenged to see if anyone can make any money out of electric vehicle charging stations yet. Um, the yeah, these are it's it's a yeah, it's a very difficult thing once everyone's going one direction to try and get people to look at something different. But we have got good uh, feeling. We hope to be closing something very shortly, actually, uh, the first round very shortly, um, with a small group of investors, and um, and we're well on the way with the. We think we're well on the way with the second round as well. But um, what we do notice is that once we've built that. Uh, first demonstration unit, once people see the first demo 10 kilowatt demonstration unit actually up and running, uh, people have offered to throw money at us. But by then, of course, we'll be able to pick and choose uh, where exactly where we want to go. Um, but the hardest part of first, of course, is to get to that point. That's our next step is to get to that point. Okay, thanks. Now, I'd just like to bring our discussion to a conclusion by asking you what is the key lesson you would pass on to budding entrepreneurs and scientists who have an innovation which could potentially help address the challenges of climate change. And do you think climate change-related innovations have any advantage over other innovations? Look, I, I think they do right now. Uh, yeah, for the next maybe five years, uh, the focus is on climate change. There's a lot of money available to putting people putting a lot of money into it. Um, but if you if you are in this area, you need to have a very clear product, a very clear way of getting into market, and a clear way of being able to make money out of it. Uh, I think that you know we'll quickly go through the days when money will be thrown at anything. People will become more discerning in what they're going to put money into. Uh, and particularly that second and third round funding uh, that you're going to need. 
So you've got to really make sure that you've got a clear path to market, a clear way to make money, a clear way to make a success. Um, because otherwise you just, you'll just run out of funding uh, before you get to where you want to be. So the, the, that's the first thing I would, uh, advice I would give someone, make sure you've got a clear path for your business. Uh, the second thing is make sure you've got the, you know, the right people doing it with you. Uh, get someone in who, who knows what they're doing. There's experience of raising money. You, you cannot, you know, you can't sway yourself from your, your primary purpose to get the product to the market, to refine the product, to keep making it better. We consider our cell, the cell we're coming out with now, to be the iPhone one of our cells. It's the first basic design. But our R&D team is going to keep working and working and working, and they do keep working to improve everything from the productivity of the cells themselves to how we structure the cells, how we structure the, uh, the panels, everything we do to improve the product because, you know, within a few years, we want the iPhone 10 of cells, which will be something that will be much better, uh, much more efficient, much faster, much more profitable, much you know, generate you know, power more cleanly, quickly. Uh, that's what we're aiming for. And that's what you should do as a, as a business. Don't lose track of what you're trying to do. Well, that concludes today's interview. Rob McLeod, CEO of Infinite Power, thank you so much for your time and all the very best to you and your colleagues with this very exciting innovation. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. Thank you. You've been listening to Business of Weather, the only podcast dedicated to the business opportunities of extreme weather and climate change.